World Mart. Remember years ago, uh, we were on a family vacation. I was with uh, Sarah, my wife's extended family, on the shores of, of Lake Erie. It was the day of my, of my birthday, and uh, we just happened to be sitting out there looking out across Lake Erie towards Perry's Monument, and there was this fantastic fireworks show going on that night, to which I just sort of, you know, sarcastically, jokingly said to this, these family members around me, hey, you guys shouldn't have. This is, this is great. To which they then uh, warmly and clearly then responded, we didn't. Um, and I think back to, to the, my, my actual day of my birth. You know, how, how was that marked? Um, you know, oddly enough, uh, President Johnson um, didn't show up at the hospital in July 1967. Um, Queen Elizabeth, no, no show. Not even Elvis. Uh, you know, the, the great and the, inf the influential and, and the powerful, oddly enough, when I showed up on the scene, did not drop everything that they were doing. They did not clear their schedules. They did not seek me out, and they did, certainly did not fall at my cradle. And they would have been insane to do so. But there is precedent for that sort of thing happening. And when it happens, it should tell us something about the child in the cradle. If you have a Bible, I'd ask you to turn with me now to Matthew chapter 2. We are moving on in our series here through Matthew's Gospel, and we are in Matthew 2. A familiar text, no doubt, to many of you, though you might be thinking the place should be decorated in red and green with garlands, but uh, no, no, we're in a series here in the Gospel of Matthew, so we, we are looking at something that normally you're accustomed to being December. But uh, Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Hear now the Word of God. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Would you pray with me? Lord, as David says in the Psalms, our cry comes before you, and so we ask that you would give us understanding 
According to Your Word, our plea comes before You. We ask that You would deliver us. According to Your Word, our lips pour forth praise. Oh, would You teach us Your statutes. Our tongues sing of Your Word. Your commandments are right. We ask that Your hand would be ready to help us. We've chosen Your precepts. Your law is our delight. We long for You and for Your salvation. Our soul live and praise You. We ask that You would help us not to go astray, that You would seek us out and help us to keep Your commands. And we know that partly that has to mean we have to know them. We have to know what the Word is if we're to keep it, if we're to live out the Gospel, if we're to walk in a way that is consistent with the Gospel, we have to know what that good news is. And so we ask that You would Give us eyes with which to see and ears with which to hear. And we know that uh, you delight to hear such prayers. And that is our prayer now this morning. Amen. The name Abraham Kuyper is not a name that is well known today, but it is certainly a, a name that is worthy of our knowing. Uh, Kuyper was uh, a key figure, a key leader in Holland some hundred years ago or so. Uh, a career that spans several different seemingly separate fields, politics and education and the church. Uh, he's, he's a unique figure, to be sure, given his stature and standing in every one of those fields and his giving himself so completely to his labors in those fields. His biographer put, described him this way, Kuiper carried a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other, for he was both a builder and a battler. His followers loved him with warm and dying devotion while his enemies hated him as they hated no one else. What was it that enabled Abraham Kuyper? What was it that motivated him? What was it that impelled him to carry on such, seemingly, such parallel interests, I guess, and career paths in, again, such seemingly separate, uh, distinct fields? Again, politics, education, the church. This is what drove him. This is what motivated him. He believed what he taught. And he lived what he taught. And you might be wondering then, well, what did he teach? It's well encapsulated, uh, the quotes there, I think in your quotes and notes, uh, well encapsulated in, in a series of lectures that he gave at Princeton Theological Seminary in 1898 this is an oft-quoted remark, but it's, it's well worth bringing out and bringing out and bringing out again and again and again. This is Kuiper's quote. There is not a square inch of the universe which King Jesus does not claim mine. That's what drove him. That's what impelled him. That's what motivated him. There's not a square inch of the universe which King Jesus does not claim mine. And Kuiper's right. Christ's reign, his Rule is broad, it is deep, it is extensive, it is intensive, um, it is strong, and it is real. And that is something that we learn here right from the outset in Matthew's Gospel, right here in Matthew 2, in this uh, one of several uh, parts of the accounts when you wed together Matthew's and Luke's accounts of Jesus is coming into this, I'll say his, world. We learn that Christ is ruler of all. 
Christ is unequivocally ruler of all, we should then be worshiping and serving Him with our all. That's the logical consequence of that, and we see it actually played out here even in the text. Christ is ruler of all. We should be worshiping and serving Him with our all. How do we see Him as ruler of all? Two ways. One, He is first ruler over all creation. Secondly, He is also ruler, king, the Savior of all the nations. Let's look at this uh, together. First, Christ as ruler over all creation. We see this clearly coming out with the appearance of this star. Now, I just have to say from the outset, uh, I give a qualifier here. There's a lot here regarding this incident we don't know. We don't quite understand fully and completely, but there's enough here that points us in the direction that clearly indicates Jesus clearly is the king, the ruler over all creation. Okay, so what do we know? What can we discern from here? There's been a lot of theories postulated through the years. What's going on there? What is it that the Magi saw? You have to allow for some freedom and flexibility in this because the Greek word that we translate in the English, star, can be translated, it can mean a whole lot of different things. It can refer to a whole lot of different heavenly bodies and activities up in the, the night sky. So because of this, even famous astronomers through the century have put forward some different ideas, one of which is perhaps it was a planetary conjunction. You know, in a key constellation that meant something to these, these magi, certain planetary bodies, certain planets moving in close proximity from their perspective possibly, possibly, must have, may have um, indicated something to them. Possibly also, here's another theory, a comet. A comment indicating getting all the more of their attention, verifying their suspicions, maybe, guiding them perhaps as they made that western journey over the horizon. Another theory that's put out there is a supernova, an uh, exploding star that, again, would have gotten their attention, these stargazers. Uh, another theory, by the way, is some combination of all of those. That perhaps there was the planetary conjunction, Perhaps there was then also the comet, and perhaps there was also a nova, yet all at the same time. Here's what I can tell you for sure. As possible as any or all of those theories are, they don't do enough justice to how Matthew describes what happened. Purely natural, normal explanations aren't going to, to, to settle up with how he describes the events in verse 9, after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. There's something supernatural going on here. That's, Matthew's being very clear with that. There's something supernatural going on here in, what, in these events, much like as Israel, centuries before, in their wanderings through the wilderness, was guided by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. So there's some things possible that we can say, some things that we're not quite sure about here. But what can we learn from these events, from this appearance of this star, at least this much, that Jesus is indeed the king of all creation? That's who has shown up on the scene. That's who is drawing, if you will, that star. His reign is over all the cosmos. Everything. 
Absolutely. It's, it's for good reason the Magi described that star as being his star. You know why? It was. Just like all of them are. As we read from Colossians just a while ago, he was from the beginning a part of the creation. All things were made through him and for him. Was it his star? You bet it was. And if I can put some personification on that, it knew whose it was. Also, this tells us something about his redemption. It tells us that this story is not just about us. It's, just not, it's, it's not just about you. It's not just about me. It's about everything. It's about a renewal, a redemption, a salvation of the entire creation of all the cosmos, of everything that there is. He has come as the king to make it all new. Not just us. Not just us. But all of it. The prophets, after all, spoke of streams, rivers flowing in the desert. They spoke of, of gardens in a, in a new heaven, in a new earth, where once there was nothing but drought. Paul speaks in, in Romans chapter 8, if you want to keep your finger here in uh, Matthew 2, but go with me to Romans chapter 8, where he speaks of this in some really stirring language of, of what has happened and where we are and what awaits. Romans 8, verses 20 through 22. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. You see, creation, at the arrival of its king, was responding as only creation could. Just as it would later, at its death, when the sky was overtaken by darkness and the ground shook because of an earthquake. This is the king of all creation who has come. Now what do we learn from this? What do we take away from this? What are we to be thinking about with this? Just at least this much... Jesus is a greater king than we oftentimes and usually imagine. He's not a regional king. This is not a, a, a democratically elected king. He's the sovereign one over everything. 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 Creation then itself. Everything you want to put your eye to has a hope has a destination, has a glorious future. He made it. He provides for it. And one day He's going to redeem it. All creation matters to God. It ought to matter to us. It ought to matter to us. We matter to Him, by the way, as well. It's not just the creation, but the creatures. We matter. All of life matters. You know what else this tells us? If He's coming to redeem it all, there is no... No line that can be drawn. No division. No separation between the imaginary sacred and secular. Because all of life is His. There is no distinction between what you do on Sunday and what you do on Monday. All of life is under the reign of Jesus. Do you know that? Creation is showing us that. It's showing us of, of what 
what's happening here is, is you might say, a, a, a preview, a foretaste of what is coming. Paul alluding to that in Romans 8, the prophet's telling us, well, you know, the day is coming where the blind will see, the lame will walk, there will be no more tears, no more sorrow, no more death, no more cancer. All of it. All of it gone. All of it made new. How did creation respond? Creation responded with a star tearing through the night sky. Creation responded with a beacon in the darkness of night. Creation responded with trembling, trying to get the rest of the creature's attention, if you will. Are we listening? Are we paying attention to who it is that's come and what's coming? Jesus is the king over all, all creation. Now, that's the first point. Here's the second point. Because who did that star draw? Who, 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 who are the first ones to, after the shepherds? But in Matthew's account, who are the first ones to, to come? The Magi. Again, like I said with the star, there's a lot here we know. There's a lot here we can made quite clear. But there's a few things we're not quite sure of and we need to be careful of, especially because of all the traditions like barnacles that have built up over the years regarding the Magi. You know, we three kings of Orient are. It's a great song. It begs to be sung in December. But there's some limitations. For starters, three we have no idea. All we're told is the number of gifts. And we're making this crazy, wild-haired assumption that the number of magi corresponds with the number of gifts. That's a leap into the dark. Likely, to tell you the truth, likely it was a whole lot more than that. And, and even if there were just three, heck, maybe there were two, right? Why not? But even if there were just three, they had to have traveled with a large entourage in a huge convoy because of the distance that they were moving and the great valuables that they were carrying. These are not just three guys on a camel rump. Also, oh, kings? No, they weren't kings either. They were magi. Now that's actually a transliteration of the Greek word there. They were not kings, but members of the royal court. They were magicians. They were uh, astrologers, astronomers. In those days, you combine the two together. Science and myth. Uh, observation and crazy conjecture. The, the idea being these stargazers, in those days, we, we understand stars, the heavenly bodies, normally have a certain regular course that they move in, right? But these men, their understanding was when they saw a, a, a unexpected variation in those courses, in their movements, they took that, they inferred that to mean something spectacular was about to happen or had happened. So, okay, we three kings. Eh. How long, by the way, did it take them? Or should they be in the year nativity scene? I, you know, actually they shouldn't. I hate to burst your bubble here, but if you can move them around, put them on the other side of the house. Put them in your neighbor's house for scale's sake. Put them in the other neighborhood, frankly. Because, you know, you, you get the sense here when you, when you really pay attention to what Matthew is saying and you think it through, by the time they get there, that Jesus is not in the stable. He's not in the cave anymore. He's in a, he's in a house. 
And, and when you pay attention to what, we didn't get into this so much, we will next week, that's the plan anyway, that, that, that Herod, Herod sends out the decree to have all the, the, the little boys there in Bethlehem, what age? Two months? Two years. Two years and younger put to death, which should tell us something in terms of likely at least how long it took these guys, the, the Magi, to get underway and maybe even how long it took them to get from Persia, likely Persia, all the way over to Bethlehem. Um, their gifts, gold and frankincense and, and myrrh. Don't read too much into this. A lot of people have spilt way, spilt way too much ink trying to read symbolism into each one of these three things. Here, here's what they were in the ancient world. Gold is the metal of kings. Frankincense was an aromatic, sweet-smelling gum from a tree that was hard to come by. And myrrh was the most expensive spice in the ancient world. Don't read symbolism into it. Just understand what the Magi would have understood here themselves. They got, they laid their hands on the most expensive things they possibly could and gave them to this king. That's what's going on here. They laid their hands on what it was for them the very best that they could possibly bring and lay at his feet. Well, those are some of the things that we can sort of know. Let me also just for a reflection some other things that we can know, not just around them, I guess you could say, as far as details, but maybe just sort of inferring from them. Were they wise men? Yeah, they were. They really were quite wise. Perhaps they even were, they knew something, they had read something, likely they had, from uh, one of their predecessors in the, the Magi Guild, Daniel. Yes, the prophet Daniel was a Magi, uh, according to these definitions. And, and these men were wise in that way. Psalm 111, what is the biblical definition of wisdom anyway? Psalm 111, verse 10, speaks to this. Psalm 111, verse 10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. These were wise men indeed. They were determined as well. Unwilling, unwilling to let anything stand in the way of their quest, of their search for this one born king of the Jews. It didn't matter how much the time was going to take. It didn't matter what the cost was going to be. It didn't matter about the, the fickleness of Jerusalem or the hostility of Herod and his political chicanery. They were wise. They were determined. They were joyful. They were joyful. Verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Matthew's falling over himself trying to describe this. This is explosive joy, overwhelming joy, exuberant joy. One author I read this past week described it as Christmas-sized joy. Going back to December. So they were wise, they were determined, they were joyful, and they were worshipers. Verse 11, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Now, the custom in the ancient Near East was to get down on your knees and press your forehead to the floor or to the ground when you came into the presence of a royal figure. And that's exactly what these men were doing. They're wise, they're determined, they're joyful, they're worshipping I think we can take their cue from all this. What can we learn, though, about the one that they have come to see? 
Not just about them. But more importantly, what can we learn about the one they have come to see? This king, having drawn them by his star, is showing himself to be exactly what Matthew tipped himself off to want to say from the start of his gospel. We looked at this a few weeks ago. This king is the king of all the nations, the ruler of all the peoples. It's interesting, you see this from the start in the front end of Matthew's gospel. If you'll turn with me to the very end, Matthew 28, it's like Matthew's trying to make this point to us like, like bookends, that Jesus is indeed the ruler of the nations, the king of all the peoples. Matthew, so you, you see what you see there in Matthew 1 and 2. Now, what, how, does the, how does it end? Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So at the start of Matthew's Gospel, he's saying, all nations were drawn to him. And at the end of Matthew's Gospel, he's saying, his followers are to be going forth to all the nations with the news of his coming. Such is God's heart for the nations, for all peoples. And in terms of, and I said something about this regarding creation and nature and the star, in terms of a foretaste of what awaits, we have something of that. That's really what this is as well. What you see there, here in Matthew 2, is a foretaste of what is coming of all the nations one day truly bowing before him. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 5, where it's made oh so clear in this vision, this vision that the Apostle John has. Revelation 5, verses 9 through 10. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Such is the mercy, the grace, the heart of God for all peoples. And my friends, that's why we're here in this room. My fellow Gentiles, this is an outworking of the very things that we're seeing here in Matthew 2 and Matthew 28. God's heart for the nations. That's why we're here. Considering these things this morning, Christ is ruler of all, the Savior of the nations. Again, and I go back to the implications or application of these things and what might they be? Like I said in the last point, Jesus is a greater king than we often imagine. How do we see the, the Magi responding here? These wise men. They were driven by the star. What they saw in the heavens, they were driven to go to Bethlehem and then they were driven to their knees before this child, before this king. Now our response ought to look something like theirs. You know, they, they um, being moved by what they saw, they went on the move. They didn't just think about it, they did something. Um, seeing something, they wanted to see and yet know more. 
uh, sing signs up in, up in the heavens, up in the stars. They began to do things down here on the earth as a consequence of that. If I can just be more practical, more down to earth, they left comfort behind. They, they, they put their careers in, in jeopardy. They put their plans on hold. They left their family, their friends behind. All good things, by the way. Never to be ultimate things. Jesus is the ultimate thing. Those things never to have, be bowed down before. Only Jesus. And they had perspective on that and sought Him out. They saw the lengths to which the living God had gone for them. And therein they were more than glad, overwhelmingly joyful, exceedingly joyful, ready to go to great lengths in response. How much more so should we? How, how little those men knew, right? How little those men knew. How little they understood. How much more so us? Christ is ruler of all. All the nations. He is ruler of all and therein worthy of all. A few months ago, I was on that trip to Israel. And uh, I had the opportunity to go visit the Church of the Nativity there in Bethlehem. I'll tell you a little bit about that place and that site. Uh, so you, you, you come and you walk through this courtyard, this stone courtyard, and you approach uh, a rather eclectic-looking building. Those of you have seen pictures of it because of the stages and the history and the themes of architecture and play and all of that, and when this was built and when this was torn down and all that. Actually, you know, it's the oldest still-functioning church in the world, that church there uh, in, in Bethlehem. So you, you go through this courtyard, you approach this great wall, and you come to this odd door. Now the door was walled up. The, the original door was almost completely walled up centuries ago by the Crusaders to keep the Muslim invaders from riding their horses into the church. So now if you want to enter, you enter a little door through which you have to stoop, unless you're a small child, you have to stoop to get in. And once you get in, you, you, you go through yet another wall, and then you enter the church itself, and the nave itself, and all the Eastern Orthodox uh, decor, I'll put it that way. To get to the cave, by the way, this, this was built on the site that it is said that the cave in which Jesus was born was, so that's why this place is there. So you, you, you walk across the nave, you move to the right, you go around a corner, and you begin to go down some steps underneath the altar uh, in the nave. You move through these, down these steps that are kind of precarious and steep, and you enter into this little room that was the cave, some 14 yards by 4 yards, you know, length, width, uh, lit by silver candles. Again, Eastern Orthodox decor. It'll throw you if you're not ready for it. And on the floor, there is a, a, a star with this inscription in Latin. Here Jesus Christ was born of the Virgin Mary. Let me tell you a couple things about this site, um, reflecting on this. This actually could well, I'm very serious, this could well have been the spot. A lot of reasons for that. If you want to talk about that later, I'll be glad to, to explain that. 
This could well have been the spot. Second thing, I can promise you it looks nothing now like it did then. Nothing. Thirdly, there is fantastic, beautiful symbolism in having to bow to enter that place. Because that's exactly what the Magi had to do and felt compelled to do. Um, you know, you think about it, the, it was the longing of their hearts, the longing of their hearts that sent them on that search, that sent them on that quest. And once they come and once they, re- they find him and they realize that their quest, their search is over, what do they do? They bow. My friends, don't let the familiarity of this story fool you. This child, this king, is the one who will meet the longing of your heart alone. He is the king of all creation and the ruler, the savior of all the nations. Worthy of our all. This one who has given his all for us. Let's pray. Oh God, help us not to assess you. Oh Lord Jesus, help us not to assess you by your appearances, by your coming. So quietly, so humbly. But really that ought to be a relief to us to know that you're not as we expect. Not that we might insist upon. Not as we often see or would otherwise think. You are the answer to creation's groaning. You are the answer to our heart's longing. We, you made us for meaning. Made us for purpose. Made us for direction. Hardwired us with a longing for justice that all things one day would be made right. And mercy that we we would be made right as well. We ask that you would help us this morning to take our cues from the star, from creation, to take our cues from these magi, these pagan astrologers from the East, the nations. You are going to redeem it all, to save it all. You're the ruler, the creator, the savior of it all. Oh, we... Pray that you would enable us by your mercy to give you our all. In your name we pray. Amen.